Hi, my name's Yvonne, and I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. All right, this is a good group here. Um, I had a dream last night that I walked into a little dark room, and there was four people, the people I brought with me from Terre Haute, sitting right over there. And I got down, and I just sat with them, we had a little mini-meeting. Uh, I need to tell you where I'm at right now. Right now, I got this kind of feeling in my stomach, you know, that nervous anxiety, you know, that self-centered fear that just kind of sets in, and I got little sweaty palms, so it was embarrassing, and holding hands in the last prayer, you know, they knew I was nervous, so I just turned around to the person next to me, and I said, I'm scared, and I report my feelings. And um, I was taught that in the program. I, it took a while to even recognize that I had feelings, but as I was sitting around, and I had this little funny feeling, I started getting a real big feeling about gratitude, because I lived most of my life with that feeling of impending doom in my gut, the feeling they're going to find out, I know they're going to catch me, I know they're going to not accept me, whatever. And I had that feeling sitting in classrooms because I was worried about being picked on and not knowing the answer. I had that feeling uh, coming home to my parents because I didn't know if my mom was going to be awake and had the door unlocked or not. Uh, waiting for my dad to come home because I didn't know if he was going to come home with a false accusation or some imaginary thing I did wrong or... Um, and chew me out for it, and, you know, driving to my house later on as an adult, wondering if he's going to be in a good mood or in a bad mood and tear the phone out of the wall or not. Uh, you know, are they going to catch me at work and find out that I put in phony receipts because I took some cash out of the cash drawer because of my first husband. I liked him better if he smoked pot instead of drinking, and I would go to any lengths to keep him sitting on the couch. <laughs> I'm not the typical Al-Anon speaker where I have the story about, you know, meeting and marrying this wonderful man, and he gets drunk, and I go crazy, and uh, then we grow up, and then we have get in the program, and kids go to Alateen and all that. Um, I got into the program before there was very much written about uh, growing up in the alcoholic home. Most of the focus in Al-Anon was being the wife of an alcoholic, and uh, I heard just a few things about growing up in the alcoholic home, and then early on I had started a a group for focusing on having alcoholic parents, and then all the old-timers got resentful, and they kept crashing my meetings. <laughs> and they make jokes that they were going to form groups saying parents of alcoholics and <laughs> blame all their defects on their kids. And <laughs> well, <laughs> you did that because you're going to join that group. Okay. I don't have any kids, so I don't apply, can't go to that group, but I do have an Alateen group. That qualifies me for anything right now. <laughs> My growing up, there wasn't, you know, anything really interesting about that. My parents, both of them are alcoholic, but their disease um, was really a quiet kind of alcoholism, and they were good people. They are good-hearted people. They had good values. They loved me. They planned on having me and my sister. We were wanted children. Uh, my dad worked hard, all the money and everything, went to the house, and uh, they drank a little bit. And uh, my parents talk about alcohol as, alcohol as being a medicine for them. And I remember growing up and watching them. They uh, they were shy people, and they weren't real comfortable. They're, they came here from another country, and so there was a hard time making friends. Uh, but, you know, they would have a few drinks with these people, and everyone would laugh and have a good time. And I'd always sort of wanted something like that. I wanted to feel good, too. I took little sips of their vodka every now and then, and it tastes really bad, real bad. And so I couldn't go very far with that. I was getting into school, and in my high school years, the people that were having fun were the ones that were doing drugs and alcohol. And I don't know how to have fun by myself. My mom used to send me off and go play somewhere, and I would just kind of sit, and I couldn't think of anything to do on my own. I'm afraid to do anything because I might get in trouble or I might not work out or I won't be good enough at it. And it's sort of like if I couldn't be the best, I didn't want to do it at all. But I saw all these friends running around having a good time, and I found a way to have fun. If I hang out with them, I could have fun through them. Now, it's a little hard to break into the drug and alcohol scene when you don't do drugs or alcohol. <laughs> but um, I'm good at counting and keeping track of. I'm a bookkeeper by trade turn that defect into an asset. <laughs> and uh, they really appreciated the fact that I could keep the, the drugs and stuff straight and that I could roll all those little pills, exactly 10, just in those little pieces of tin foil, and keep track of the money. 
they enjoyed that. But I could also uh, make sure that they got stayed out of trouble because I would be the lookout at school, you know, stand around the corner and wait because I'm aware. I would know if a teacher was coming or not. <laughs> and I appreciated having uh, that they needed me and they wanted me to be around if I kind of helped them out with these deals. And so they were fun to be around. The, um, my uh, choices and boyfriends weren't real good because they were the, the extra fun ones. <laughs> and they needed a little more keeping track of. And then, um, you know, if, if he faded away, then I'd pick another one right away. And I didn't have very much judgment about it. it basically, if anyone was nice to me, that was good enough for me to be with them. And it didn't matter what kind of values they had or what background they had or, you know, if we even had anything in common or not. The thing was is that they paid attention to me and they needed me around. The first, uh, my first husband, I'd met him in, as a senior in high school, and he was the class clown. He was a bright man, but he had terrible grades because he was too, much, too busy having fun, cracking jokes in the, in the class, and I was just as cute as could be. And uh, poor thing, you know, his parents were alcoholic, the kind that stayed up late drinking and fighting, and, you know, there was heartache in his house, and he felt so bad about it, and I just put him in my loving arms and, you know, I'll take care of you, and... Uh, right after high school, I moved out of the house. He was going to stay home and go to college and do the sensible thing. That was the plan his parents made. But, you know, he was so heartbroken about what was going on. I says, come stay with me. He couldn't really afford to, and that's how I learned how to take hostages financially. If I support him, they'll stay. <laughs> now, I don't know if he was an alcoholic or not. I've never seen him in an AA meeting raising his hand and identifying himself as an alcoholic. The reason I say my parents were alcoholic is because they're sober today and they've told me that. But I know that his drinking bothered me, that he worked in a liquor store and that he was supposed to get off work and then come over to my house. <laughs> well, he would work at the liquor store. He and his buddies would clean out the liquor store and they'd be off and running. And then I would wonder where he is at. Um, I felt unimportant during those times. He was having more fun with those folks, and it was more important for him to be with those folks than it was to be with me. And I knew that I didn't measure up, and it made me feel bad, so I was just real uncomfortable with it. And I tried everything to, you know, entice him away from his drinking friends, and that was usually through, uh, you know, sexual things or money things or whatever. It was uncomfortable. But, uh, you know, we're living together, Things were doing okay. You know, my parents drinking at that time had progressed to the point where they were no longer uh, functioning at a real high level. And my sister started calling me, and she started complaining about their drinking and what should I do. And, like, I knew what my parents' system was, is that they had alcohol, their vodka tucked in the medicine cabinet and the, the little secret places. And uh, I says, you know, put salt in it. My sister found out that made them more thirsty. <laughs> the pouring it out and pour water in it just makes them drink more because they're going for the effect. And so there wasn't anything to really do about it. And I just said, well, just ignore them. Move out of there as soon as you can. And uh, I didn't keep in contact with my sister, really, to see how she was faring in my parents' progression with alcoholism because I was getting pretty busy with the progression of what's going on in my relationship. Uh, there is, um, you know, it was really hard trying to keep up a false front and not being happy with what I had at home. I had a girlfriend of mine come from, visit me from high school, and I was pretty proud. I was the first one to have, like, the, you know, the little, uh, the, the home and the man, and, you know, you know and she's still single. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, I'm, she's going to come over and have lunch, and I'm going to show off my new little life. And uh, my, uh, uh, I'll call him, my first husband, when he was my boyfriend, he walked into the house, and he looked out the window, and he noticed that somebody had parked in his parking spot. That's right in front of the house. So he opened up the little louvered windows, took his gun, and shot out that windshield. And my friend was right there. Now, to let you know where I'm at, I told my friend that, well, that person should not have parked there. <laughs> Everybody knows that that's his spot. And then later, when my, you know, I'm keeping up the false front, I'm cool. We have a nice little lunch, and she goes away. I go into the bathroom, and I notice that there's a little smudge of something on the toilet seat. And I go into a flying rage about it, and I slam that seat down, and it cracks, and I just stomp through the house, and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. So, yeah, he used drugs and alcohol, but I don't know what my excuse was for being that unmanageable and not being able to predict my own behavior. Uh, it wasn't real pleasant times for me. Well, everybody at work 
they were um, married and they owned houses and they were treated like adults. Now, I was only like 19 years old. I was definitely the kid on the block, but I couldn't understand why they were treating me like the new kid on the block. I wanted to be a grown-up, too. It's real important to, I wanted some uh, prestige, I wanted some respect, and that wasn't happening. Um, so I decided that if I was married and bought a house, then I would be an adult, too. Now, when I looked at my boyfriend, I did not picture living the rest of my life with him. You know, he was a, you know, he's a nice guy. He was a lot of fun, lots of parties going on. But I had no intention of living the rest of my life with him. But in order to buy a house, the cheapest way with the government loan was that you had to be a married person. And uh, I asked that, suggested that we got married. He wasn't real thrilled about that. And I said, either that or I have to go, you know, you're going to have to leave. And he was a hostage. He didn't do well with working and uh, supporting himself. And he needed to stay, didn't have everyone anywhere else to go. And he married me. And, um, you know, I thought, well, okay, well, good, I'll have a, and there's a part of me that sort of wanted to have a wedding, you know, just, you know, do it right. But my dad, who was still drinking at the time, looked at me and goes, I'll give you $100 if you elope. I hate those weddings. And so I took that $100 and bought my little dresses and stuff, and we had the wedding in his backyard. I eloped into his backyard, just to you know, make it as close to him as possible to irritate him. And... Uh, <laughs> My mom drank with my best friend. They split a bottle of champagne, and they're off in the corner drinking, and my husband was in the band that played, so the, the groom was up playing. And I waited until he was done, people were dancing, and then we drove off for the honeymoon. And it wasn't the kind of wedding that I had planned on, but then I wasn't really too disappointed after all because I didn't think it was going to work out, but I really, really wanted to buy a house. <laughs> wanted to buy a house so much that I lied on the application. We said we made more money than we had. And uh, since I answered the phone at work, I could verify it. <laughs> so we bought a house that we couldn't afford. And, we got, and uh, we got into that. And five months later, we were getting divorced and we lost the house. And, uh, you know, just lying, cheating, and stealing, doing, going to any lengths to get my own way, wasn't paying off one more time. When we were getting divorced, we had gone back and forth a few times in the relationship. You know, he said he was leaving, and I'd say, but I think I'm pregnant. He'd come back, no, I'm not pregnant, and then I would leave, and he'd beg me back, and we'd go through. Um, uh, I'm not sure if he cheated on me or not, but, you know, I certainly assumed that he was. Uh, and when we finally decided to get a divorce, we went over to my parents' house to tell them that we were getting a divorce. By then, my parents had been sober a couple of months, and uh, they... And I was expecting the big drama because they were having hopes and dreams that their daughter would, you know, get married and have a nice little life and no one in the family's ever been divorced before. And I thought we we're gonna have kind of a big drama and that they would take me into their arms and say, It's all right, honey, and we'll help you out and uh, uh, my dad looked down on his watch and my mom looked over at him and goes, Well, it's time to go to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and they left my husband and I sitting in the living room and they ran off to an AA meeting. And <laughs> So I wasn't real grateful for their sobriety at that time. <laughs> I packed up my stuff and my dogs and uh, moved into my parents' backyard. There's a statistics that talks about parents, um, about children getting married too young and then they come back and they live with their parents and I didn't want to like move back into the house. <laughs> so I pitched a tent in their backyard. <laughs> Because in my mind, that made perfect sense. I wasn't right back in the house with them. It was two tents. One had the stuff. The other one had me and the couches. And we ran lines for the television and um, the alarm clock. There's a real short, rainy season in uh, California. And I, that's when I was living in the, the tent, was that during that rainy season. And I had several dogs with me. And it gets a little musty. <laughs> But during that time, on Friday and Saturday nights, since I didn't have a date or anything to do, my parents invited me to come to open AA speaker meetings with them. And so I would go along so that I could support them, made sure to sit close. If a speaker sets up, my mom needed to hear. You know, pointed out to them. They were lovingly accepting of all my help, and they kept inviting me to come to meetings with them. In the meantime, a friend of mine, she had split up from her partner, and uh, she had a little girl, and I had a dog, and we thought it would be a good idea to rent a house together so we'd have enough space. And uh, she belonged to a softball team with some kids that I had gone to high school with, and uh, she invited me to become part of the softball team. And 
you know, I thought I was having a good time. Now, my parents were still inviting me when I didn't have a date to come to a meeting with them, and I really enjoyed listening to those speaker meetings, uh, the, especially the AA woman who would get up there, they'd be dressed, I'm wearing a dress, they'd have jewelry on, they'd have their hair done, and they'd tell their story, which sounded a lot like mine, things about sleeping with anybody just because they asked doing things with other people even though they didn't want to, just you know, doing all those I couldn't help it. But the problem, the difference between them and me is that they were drinking while they were doing those things, and I wasn't. But I saw the recovery that these people had, and, my, um, and I, wanted to, I wanted that really bad. I wanted to feel comfortable in my own skin. I wanted to know that I was an okay person, and I wanted to enjoy life on life's terms and all these wonderful things. So I thought, well, I'll join AA. <laughs> I took a look at the steps, heard some of the people, and I thought, no. This is a program of honesty. They'll find out that I'm not an alcoholic, and I'll get kicked out. And I'm getting kicked out of AA. I can't imagine anything worse. <laughs> so I have brilliant thinking, and I thought, well, I'll become an alcoholic. Both of my parents were alcoholic. What they describe of their parents and aunts and uncles and stuff, it sounds like we have that in our family pretty strong. So the chances of me becoming an alcoholic are pretty good. The only thing I have to do is drink. So I started going to the bar with my uh, roommate and the softball team afterwards. This is the bar that sponsored us. And I thought I would drink my way into AA. <laughs> Shouldn't be hard. Well, we'd have a softball game. I was the pitcher. The team would lose. And everybody would be in a real bad mood. We'd go to the bar. I'd have my little Kaluan cream. I drink, you know, two and a half Kaluan creams over a three-hour period is the best I can do. And that's <laughs> the ice melts in it, it gets watery. You know. And I just could not drink my way into AA. <laughs> this is a disease. You either have it or not. It's like being pregnant and how much you're showing. <laughs> So I settled for just sitting occasionally with my parents and listening and uh, try to get what I could from osmosis. Now, my dad had suggested Al-Anon. And what I pictured in Al-Anon was a battered women's shelter in the basement and a bunch of really sad women sitting around boo-hooing. And, you know, they didn't have the guts to leave their <laughs> SOB. And I just didn't, I was, you know, 21 years old. And that just didn't sound like the place for me. And so my dad offered to take me to a meeting. So we drove by a meeting, and we got in the parking lot, we walked by, we peeked in the room. There was a bunch of women sitting in there, and they all had blue hair, and they're sitting around, and they're crocheting, and they scared us, and we ran away. <laughs> My dad had mercy. He didn't make me go in there. Now... I crochet, but that's when my arthritis isn't acting up, and I need to color my hair again. The grays are coming through. I have a better tolerance of that today. So we didn't get anywhere with going to Al-Anon, but my dad gave me a copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he says, uh, don't read the front part, read the stories. So I read the front part first, <laughs> then I read the stories. He had seen my behavior, and he was secretly hoping that I would discover that I was an alcoholic so I could find recovery. He knew I needed recovery, but, uh, you know, I just either alcoholic or you're not. So my, uh, my roommate's parents came to stay with us for a short period of time. They were only going to stay a couple of weeks. They had lost the home that they were in, and they needed a place to be until they got a new place. And they were the rip-roaring kind of alcoholics. They were rip-roaring drunks. I call them alcoholics because I know they got sober, too. It was a while back. They uh, fought in my living room. They broke my television. They didn't replace it. They terrified my roommate's little girl by grabbing her and saying, Don't you know how much we love you? And this little girl's just squalling. I knew my roommate was, uh, had been raised in a physically abusive household, and she was very afraid. And she would come into my room at night and sit on the bed and cry and shake as she heard the fighting and the hacking and the puking stuff going on. And I would get so infuriated that this, this woman that was like a big sister to me that I had known since I was a kid and I looked up to was diminished to just this crying, puny, helpless little person. And it infuriated me, and I needed to do something about these drunks in my living room. Well, I had read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I knew that in order for my parents to uh, maintain their sobriety, it was necessary for them to work with newcomers. <laughs> 
I called my dad and I told him that I had some drunks for him. <laughs> he said I needed to go to Al-Anon. And I went, no. And I, at that time, I rattled off the pages that I had read it in that he was supposed to work with newcomers, get them sober, as chapter how it works or something. And I started reading to him about stuff. And he goes, no, you need to go to Al-Anon. I said, I'm not going to Al-Anon. And he goes, you don't want to go to Al-Anon because there's a bunch of other manipulating witches like you there, but he didn't use the word witch. <laughs> the hair on the back of my head stood up. And, uh, you know, I'm always up to a challenge. <laughs> and I knew I didn't need to go to Al-Anon for myself because those weren't my drunks. But my roommate needed to go. And she was too alone and frightened and small to be able to get there under her own steam, so I was going to help her. <laughs> So I called the, um, we lived in Los Angeles, and I called the Los Angeles Central Office, Alamon Information Service, and uh, I asked for Barbara's meeting. There was a woman that I knew that was an Alanon. She was a nurse that my dad had worked with years ago, back when my dad was drinking. I loved Barbara. I worked with her on Saturdays because she was just so big and powerful and funny, and she scared my dad. And anybody who intimidates my dad, who intimidates me, was my hero. <laughs> So I asked central office where Barbara's meeting was. And they informed me that nobody's in charge of any of the meetings, and uh, they asked what town it would be. So you know, I told them the town. They gave me two meetings that it could possibly be. And I picked up my roommate, and we went to go look for Barbara. We found her at the first meeting, and she was a completely different person there. She was not no longer mean and intimidating. She was still just as funny, and she looked wonderful, but she was not mean and intimidating, and I... She had the same light in her eyes that those beautiful AA women had that were standing behind the podium. And I thought, okay, well, this must be it. So I sat down with my roommate. People were talking, stuff that, you know, I heard sort of similar to AA stuff, and so that was fairly comfortable. I was not afraid in that meeting. And in the last 10 minutes of the meeting, when they asked if there was anybody with any questions, my little hand went right up. And I asked as... Um, how do I move these alcoholics out of the house without hurting their feelings? Because <laughs> not hurting other people's feelings is one of the driving forces that I have. I'm a people pleaser. Can't use people unless you please them first. I can't give what I want from them unless I make them happy first. So people pleasing is not quite the nice little defect that some people make it sound to be. But uh, there was a woman in that meeting, her name was Winnie Eddy, and she tell, told a story about, um, you know, she, when she was new, she had glasses. Her sponsor put a little jeweled butterfly in the corner of her glasses, and that drove her crazy. She just kept looking at it, and it would get in her way. It interfered with her vision. She'd trip over things because she was focused in on that little jeweled butterfly. But then when she found she took her eyes off that butterfly and looked straight ahead, her vision was clear, nothing was in her way, she navigated just fine. And being really smart, I figured out that she was talking to me, and she was telling me if I took my eyes off those drunks, they wouldn't bother me. And I had a meeting list, saw there was a meeting every night, and I made the decision to go to a meeting every night. Go to work during the day, go to a meeting at night, didn't have to see them for that many hours, and they wouldn't bother me as much. And that got me to a lot of meetings. And I'm grateful for starting out with a lot of meetings under my belt. Another thing that got me to a lot of meetings was I know I had a problem with picking out... Um, you know, after my first husband, everybody that I was dating was getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and they were getting down to uh, not taking baths and having missing teeth and, <laughs> and not real attractive. I was hopping on the backs of motorcycles with uh, folks that were in blackouts. Someone get 86 out of a bar, I'd follow them out of a bar and say, are you all right? Because I knew they had hurt feelings about getting kicked out of the bar. <laughs> I saw a young man sitting in an Alnon meeting, and I knew he had to be better than what I've been chasing around. So uh, I couldn't tell if he was married or not because he didn't talk about uh, who the alcoholic was in his life or anything, and it had my curiosity up. So I chased him for five meetings before I found out that he was married. But you know, that got me to a few more meetings that I normally wouldn't have got to. Got to. That's a loving, creative, higher power that would do whatever he needs to do to get my attention. And at that time, boys are about the only thing that would get my attention. I'd also been, um, while I was living with my roommate, there was one young man who took me on one date. And I've uh, tried my hardest to hold him hostage, to get him to pay attention to me, and it was only one date. But I spent a year chasing him. 
obsessive phone calls. And I can, uh, this was the days before redial. Beep, 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 beep. And I can do it just as fast as redial. And I could dial his number over and over and over again. I would wait after work to see where he's going. I'd follow him. There's times that I would leave my house 10 o'clock at night just obsessed, wondering, who is he with? He's not even acknowledging that he's with me, but I'm latched onto him. Uh, that I would drive to his apartment 30 miles away, climb over the fence, and try to peek through his window, see if I could see him. Today, that kind of behavior is illegal. It's called stalking. And in <laughs> Indiana, the group that I was involved with, um, where I worked, we were involved in uh, getting that law drawn up. <laughs> Maybe it's because I understood the behavior so well. <laughs> so, um, I was going on to Al-Anon meetings, and I was really pretty happy because I kept finding people in there that looked like the alcoholics. They were uh, happy. They were fun. And um, there are some, a lot of people, though, that I didn't like in the meetings. And there's this one gal who just irritated me because she shared at every meeting and she walked into the meetings a little bit late with a big flourish and you know, she's a big show off but she's about three years in the program and knew everything and uh, she spotted me as a newcomer I didn't identify myself as a newcomer in Al-Anon people would ask for newcomers and I wouldn't raise my hand I figured I had uh, I read all the Al-Anon literature in the first few weeks so I, I already knew that stuff and I had been attending open AA meetings so I felt that I was not a newcomer but she picked me out as a newcomer, and she every meeting she saw me at, she would pick on me, and she goes, get a sponsor. You need to work the steps. Get a sponsor. You need to work the steps. And just to make her shut up, I asked her to be my sponsor. <laughs> she told me that I had to call her every day. And uh, just like previous speaker, I don't take direction very well, which is hard to do when you're also a people pleaser because you want to, you know, look like you're doing the right thing. So I would call her, and she'd say, how are you doing? I'd say, Fine. What'd you do today? Worked. How you feeling? All right. And I hang up the phone. I called her. And I, but I wanted to work the steps because I knew from all the pe- people that had talked in the meetings and any of the recovery programs that working the steps was a solution. And I was a good student at school, and I figured out that I should be able to figure out how to work the steps by myself in the living room. The first time I, I one, two, and three didn't impress me. I don't um, didn't subscribe to any type of a god or a higher power, so it didn't mean a whole lot to me. But I figured step four was one of those steps that you could prove to someone else that you worked because it's on paper. Got to read it to someone else, and um, so I started writing an inventory one night, and I wrote down I am pissed off at George. Uh, his his boyfriend in the ninth grade because uh, he got me pregnant and he left me. And then I realized that that story had never happened. But I was, a, like I said before, I was a liar, cheating, a thief. And one of the lies that I told was that when my boyfriend George, when I was in the ninth grade, when he went in the Navy and I felt abandoned, was I started telling people that I was pregnant. Well, then after a while, when you don't show, you got to make up some more stories about it. And then I moved to a different town. So I could change the story completely around to get even more sympathy from people. By then, I had this little boy, Kenneth, and he was born on October 28th, and he was living with his grandmother in another state. And every October 28th, I had to remember to get depressed. And that's the story that my first husband believes about me. (laughs) I started writing that story down, and when I saw that this lie that I had been telling for years and years that I believed it enough to write it down on a piece of paper, I realized that step two applied to me because I needed to be restored to sanity. I didn't think I was nuts before then, but for that compulsive lying was a real clear indication to me that there was something really not right here. And I started listening more in meetings and identifying with other people. And instead of criticizing the way other people were sharing, I started identifying with other people and what they were sharing and taking it to heart. And I learned a lot about myself, about my behaviors not being right, my way of thinking not being right, that I realized that a step two applied to me. Talk about if you have trouble with a step to go back to the one before it. I still couldn't get a four-step written out. It just, I'd never get the right mood, couldn't find the right pen, just couldn't, I'd sit down, I'd have the right paper in the pen and the right atmosphere, but I couldn't remember anything. They said to go back to the step before it, and that's the third step. Well, I didn't know anything. I 
you know, about a higher power or, you know, having to surrender. To me, I don't know how to work a third step to this day. To me, it is still a spiritual experience that happens to me. And it's usually behind some kind of pain. Well, this young man that I was stalking, other women he had gone out with too, but, you know, he would never let anybody else answer his phone or, you know, um, or acknowledge that he was with anybody else. You know, he's pretty uh, discreet. Well, I called him one time, and a woman answered the phone, and there's a part of me that knew for sure that he was not interested in me, that somebody else, he finally found someone he's interested in. And I hung up that phone, and I was just devastated, and I saw clearly what a lunatic I had been behind that kind of obsessiveness. And uh, that night I just sat down, and I wrote the whole inventory out in one night. And it wasn't picture perfect like I had hoped it would be. I had studied. I'd go to step study meetings, and then at that time, there was a panel of women running around calling a step, thing, um, you know, the step panel or something, you know, that they talked about how to work the steps. And I would take notes in meetings, and I knew how to do the four columns perfectly from the big book. And I didn't really care for the blueprint or for progress book. I tried that, yes, no, maybe, sort of, sometimes kind of <laughs> different answers on different days. I didn't know how to be honest enough to use that particular tool. But when I wrote that inventory that night, it was a mess. Some of it was columns, other had little index cards for separate kinds of observations, and then I had my defects over here and lined up some amends over there. And, um, and I just knew that I couldn't share it with this woman that I couldn't even have phone conversations with. I didn't trust her, and I didn't like her. And uh, the person that came to my mind that I knew I wanted to share it with was Barbara, that funny woman in the meeting, the one that was my hero, before the program and the one that was my hero in the program because she had what I wanted. So I called her up and asked if I could do a fifth step with her. And she, she said sure. Uh, she had a goofy little dog with a lot of little hair and she put it, you know, jumped up in my lap and as I'm reading my inventory to her, I was petting this dog. And you know how your hands get clammy, sort of like how they are now? Just pull that fur right off that dog and there's this fuzzball on the tail end of it. <laughs> But I'm really grateful because I'm a real nervous kind of person and I needed to do stuff with my hands. And I thought, isn't that, you know, I love dogs. And at that time, I loved dogs more than people. Wasn't that nice that my higher power let me have a sponsor that had a dog to help me feel comfortable to get through that? Well, my first sponsor was not very impressed with that inventory. I thought she would be. <laughs> she lit up a cigarette and goes, my dear, your problem is that you have poor judgment. And I was really disappointed to find out that that was my main problem. I was almost waiting for some kind of a diagnosis, like I'm a borderline personality schizophrenic or something. And uh, it was just real simple. I was young and stupid. <laughs> it was suggested to me that I check out my ideas with other people first and things like that. And um, so, you know, life kind of went on. I was interested in doing the amend step. And the first one to do, be real easy, was my ex-husband because he lived far away. So I wrote out a letter, and I told him about all about being in the program and the effects of alcohol, other people's alcoholism on me. Apologize for what I did. You know, and uh, <laughs> met my sponsor in Alano Club, and I was real happy because this was another step that you proved that you've worked. And if I work it, then in step study meeting, I get to share about it. We had the stupid rule. If you hadn't worked a step, you couldn't share on it. <laughs> I used to debate, well, how do you prove if you worked a first step or not? I think they all knew. <laughs> but I was excited to be on with the amend step. And so I met my sponsor at the Alana Club, and I, uh, and I read this letter to her. And she puts on her glasses, and she's paying attention to me, and she takes my letter. And, and I'm proud because I rewrote it a few times, grammatically correct, neat. And she tore it up right in the Alana Club in front of everybody and said, if you're honest, like you were in your four-step, this might be worth something. And I was like, oh, my God, tell them the truth. And I just saw. <laughs> that was things like, a, you know, I had to apologize for not being sincere in marrying him and being uh, the idea of being a husband and wife for uh, till death do his part. That was not in my heart, and I had to admit that to him. I had to let him know that the failure of the marriage was not him. It's not because he's using drugs or alcohol. Drugs and alcohol is not the problem. Um, you know, keep enough pot in him, he stayed on the couch. I was happy if he was on the couch. I let him know that, you know, I had a problem with commitment and sincerity. And so making the amends, I sent that letter off. 
and uh, I was able to go on from there and work the other steps and be pretty happy. And things started changing for me in the program. There are things like conventions going on, and people invite me to go along. Then we got into convention planning, and I got to be part of registration, and another year hospitality, and when you're a treasurer. So the story behind that, like I said, I'm a liar, cheat, and thief. You steal out of the cash box at work. The first time I told that story in a meeting, the next week they made me treasurer of that group. <laughs> I got to advance to being treasurer of a uh, convention. Uh, so things have changed a lot. I started having an awful lot of fun. And I was real happy with recovery. And I started sponsoring other people. And in California, we had a lot of young people in Al-Anon at that time. Looking around the room today, and there's not a whole lot of young Al-Anon members in here. And I was reading in the World Service Manual that only 1% of the Al-Anons are between the ages of uh, 21 and 35. And um, I'm trying to look around my home area to see what I can do but change that. Maybe getting babysitting meetings might help. At that time, I was real lucky that we had young people that I could run around with, and we'd go to Hollywood for these dances, AA dances and stuff, and i date people, and they're getting a little bit better, you know, from missing teeth to having teeth and <laughs> having cars, dated somebody who had a job once. <laughs> but my... Uh, Judgment wasn't completely repaired yet. This person who had the job had a history of domestic violence in his past. And people were warning me at the club. and says, don't go out with him. He's, he's rough on women. And uh, so I thought, well, I better not tell my sponsor about him. <laughs> well, my sponsor found out that I was dating this person. And she didn't say anything to me about, no, I shouldn't do that. She wasn't in charge of me. She didn't deny me any opportunities to learn and grow. She'd just smile at me and say, well, good, have fun. I'll be here. <laughs> and all those women in my first home group, they didn't do anything. They never told me what to do or not to do, even though I kept asking for that. But I learned a little bit about what, um, you know, this thing about a God. What is a God? You know, it's a person sitting on a cloud with a book or whatever, the little kindergarten idea that I had of him. What I found is the God that expresses himself through a group conscience. And I would sit in a meeting and I'd tell uh, the ladies in the meeting about, you know, something that I did, like I had a resentment against someone. So I wrote down all my feelings and all the ladies' heads would bob up and down in approval. And then I would say, and then I put an envelope and I stuck it in the mail. And they go, ooh, that. <laughs> For me, that's the higher power that expresses himself through group conscience is through the people in the meetings. And that was my higher power back then and it's still pretty much a higher power for me today because I need the fellowship. I can't sit alone in the living room and just have God consciousness. I need the folks. So I start dating different people, have different learning experiences, new opportunities to write new tenth steps, learn more about myself, ask God to take care of some more of my defects. In regards to taking care of my defects, there are things that I wanted to take care of, that I wanted God to take care of right away. For instance, I bite the skin around my nails. And that's painful, and it's ugly, and uh, it's embarrassing because people look at my hands and, ew, you know, like a... And uh, one of my early meetings, I'd gone up to a lady, and I said, you know, if I come to the meeting long enough, do you think uh, I'll stop doing that? And she goes, oh, sure, honey. You know, and she told me got about a girl she sponsored. She used to pull her eyebrows out and doesn't do it anymore, and I had some hope. <laughs> well, this one was bleeding yesterday. It has still not gone away. But as the previous speaker was ta talking about, is that... It, God doesn't remove the defects of character that bother me. Just remove defects of character that get in the way of me being of service to uh, him and others. And so things like the, the outright lying, cheating, and stealing that make people not trust me, not like me, are removed. I'm still stuck with things like feeling insecure at times, or uh, you know, biting my nails, or thinking I'm in charge. That was for you, Dave. <laughs> uh, that, you know, I'm still stuck with some of those things. But I've learned how to turn around some of my defects into assets. That great ability to count and keep track of. With my, with my father, I had written down the, the lies that he told me and the broken promises. And I kept those in my diary. Other people write about their experiences in their diary, but I was keeping track of important things in my diary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being able to count out drugs perfectly. You know, and things like that. Well, I'm a bookkeeper today, and I'm a darn good one. And uh, I work for a not-for-profit 
and the, the other not-for-profit agencies, uh, their bookkeepers call and ask me for help, and I freely give it because I think it's a gift that God gave to me. When I used to work other places, you know, you weren't supposed to help other companies, but I've made the decision to put myself in a working environment so that I can be of service to others and I don't have to, quote, keep secrets or, you know, uh, keep the profit to ourselves or the information to ourselves. I'm in the business of giving. So the thing with the defects of character I finally uh, lightened up with. I had to learn how to accept myself the way I am, as goofy and as broken as I am, this is what I am and I have to accept it. And self-acceptance has been a major key in my feeling comfortable. Um, a visual that was given to me was that uh, God loves me because I am imper imperfect, not because I'm doing so well. And that didn't make any sense to me until I was given the description of, you know, a broken vase, and if the person who owns the vase glues it together and spends time gluing it together, and even if it doesn't hold water anymore, because it's precious to them and they've tried so hard to fix it, that it has a special place and it has a, a new purpose. Maybe you put flowers in it instead of uh, putting water in it. And I'm a collector of a Swedish crystal, and my most favorite vase got broken. And I've glued it back together, not very well. It's got jagged edges. Have to be very careful picking it up because you'll get cut. But it, it's the most beautiful piece that I have, and I keep it. And so I understand that visual and that, you know, if God loves me even if I'm broken, that maybe I can love me even though I'm broken. And the more I worked with other people, the more grateful I've become for, for the way I am and for the experiences that I had. The first time I got grateful for... Um, well, in high school, I was a school slut, and that's a very painful place to come from. But my first Alateen group, a little girl came into the group, and she was crying because she was the school slut. And I got to put my loving arms around her, and I got to love on her and tell her what a wonderful person she was in spite of this little part of behavior. And then that could change. And then I was able to talk to her about the feelings that I had and why I was doing it and how I keep myself from doing that today. And there's no way I would have been able to have that much love and compassion for her and try to pass on some healing to her unless I had had some of that damage myself. And so that became a treasured part of myself. There's other things for, about me that uh, I can share with others now. Sometimes I feel awkward in Al-Anon meeting because I'm not what one old-timer called a true blue Al-Anon. You know, I'm not married to the rowdy drunk, and I didn't go through physical violence, and I wasn't sexually abused as a kid and all these other things. But I was given the opportunity to recover in here. And I know that my disease is deadly because I've had attempts at suicide and homicide. Either with, you know, you're either going to die or go to jail, go to the loony bin. That I am grateful for the recovery that I have here. And I'll go to any lengths to try and pass that message on. Now, I had met my husband. I had uh, split up with uh, one of those young men. And... Um, and I was, uh, at that time, I was having a hard time because I had, I was in the program about six years, and I knew it all, and I was doing well, and I wasn't sharing about what was really going on in meetings. I would go to meetings, and I'd have a little canned pitch for any topic that came up. If the topic was acceptance, I'd have a little story about acceptance that I'd share in the meeting. And I wasn't talking about what was going on today. And then when that relationship blew up, I did not have a support system around me. I had backed away from a sponsor at that time. I thought she was getting arrogant, and I'm <laughs> no, she thought I was. Uh, and I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't accountable to anyone. So when the relationship blew up, one of the things that I did is, is I knew I needed to get to a meeting. And so I went to that Saturday night meeting, and I stood out the door, and I looked inside, and there was all these people in there, and I was too afraid to go in. And I had six years in the program, but I was too embarrassed and too hurt to go in the meeting and report myself for where I was standing today. And that was a really scary place to be at. I was able to go home and make some phone calls to some people that I remember that I did trust. And I was able to gather them around me. And they started picking me up and taking me places. And they'd take me to a meeting. And they'd take me jogging. And they'd take me for an ice cream. And they'd drop me off at home. And they just waited until I healed up enough to be able to start talking. And from that point on, I've been able to share more openly about where I'm at today. I had another old-timer one time say that in meetings, we only share in a general way about what happened, what it was like, what we are now. And I says, fine, that works for you. But to save my own butt, I need to be honest about where I'm at today. And if things aren't right, I need to tell you. 
Now, I'll have some discretion about some of the details and use some common sense there. But, you know, if things aren't right, I'll talk about it. If things are right, I'll talk about it. So I, was, uh, I started getting myself back into uh, meetings and sharing honestly again. And I spotted Dave. And he was a really nice man, and he was uh, sober several years, and he'd do things like show up with a pickup truck whenever anyone needed to move and help them move. And he was a wonderful dad. He had a three-year-old boy that he drug around everywhere with him, never left him with a babysitter on the weekends that he had him. He was a responsible dad. If kids weren't invited, then he wasn't invited, and I really respected that. Uh, I'd never heard anything bad about him, and he's kind of cute. And then all my girlfriends spotted him, too, at the same time. And um, Dave got dumped on a Thursday night, and I made a pass on Friday night. He missed it, so I had to do it again on Saturday night. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a whirlwind relationship. Before then, I had had a bottoming out, and I decided that I was probably never going to get married, and I was never going to have a long-term relationship, and I was just going to have to give it up. And I had to do another third-step prayer which is just about exactly what my first third step prayer was. God, if you want me to be single, fine. Flippin' fine. (laughs) Letting go the one most important thing to me and letting God take care of it. And I decided to be of service since I couldn't be a nun, not Catholic. I'll just be some, uh, you know, service guru in uh, Al-Anon and go on to world service. (laughs) And... uh, and, uh, but, you know, Dave was there, and, the, and it just clicked, and it worked, and I, I felt like I loved him right away. I felt like he loved me right away. Same uh, values when it comes to, uh, you know, what family should be, what program and recovery should be. He was a very strong program, and he was a good speaker, and uh, he loaded cars up with newcomers and dro- drove them off to meetings, and, um, and we got married. And I decided to have a wedding this time. And I wasn't going to elope anywhere. But I don't have any social graces. I don't know anything about it. My mom slept through a lot of that stuff. I don't think she was raised with knowing very much of it. And you can't pass on what you don't know. But I had learned a lot in Al-Anon, and I learned a lot in conventions, that you know the chairperson gets committees, and those committee people get form committees, and they do all the work, and then they come back and poof, convention. I thought, wedding, okay. <laughs> I had committees. And everybody did their little jobs, and I came back, and we had this wonderful wedding that just came off without a hitch, and it was really nice. And it was something that I would like to go attend and watch, you know, and, uh, and it meant something to me. What I really liked was that, you know, that we paid attention to the preacher when the preacher's saying things like, till death do you, do you part. That's where I'm at, is that I have a sense of commitment. This wedding was a whole lot different than that first wedding. It wasn't about buying a house or getting the things I wanted or looking good in the community. Is that I pictured myself being 80 years old and holding this man's hand, you know, and watching TV or something, you know, just, and um, I could see it. Well, right away, he gets a job in Indiana. We move Los Angeles out to Terre Haute, Indiana. And I'm used to meetings where there's 50 people in a meeting. And I get myself together and I run off to a meeting in Terre Haute and nobody's there. Well, you know, if one or two people miss a meeting, there might not be a meeting that night. And I, uh, for a few years, were there, and, you know, I was going to meetings. And, uh, and the enthusiasm left me. And I also got busy on something else. Since I can't have children, that choice was removed from me, we decided to adopt. Uh, couldn't afford to go buy a baby somewhere. So I had to go through the system, and, you know, to get a baby takes 10 years, but if you get an older child... Then you can get, you know, you can do this fostering parenting thing for a year and then adopt. And so we got this beautiful little girl. She was only four and a half years old. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She was really cute. She looked like pictures of my sister and I when we were kids. She could have been mine. Within two years, the damage of where she had come from, and there was alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, uh, family violence in her background. By the time she was six and a half years old, it became apparent that the damage to her was too great for us to handle. That uh, we don't know what happened to her, but it must have been terrible for her to be doing what she was doing. We had her hospitalized several times. We had all kinds of heavy-duty medication. She was kicked out of all these little schools, even special schools. And when uh, it was uh, 
the relationship between Dave and I had become to a standstill. He was the sensible one. He knew it wasn't going to work out. But he also saw that I wasn't ready to let go yet, so he was just going to wait. Wait until I came to my senses, didn't put any pressure on me. But one night, he and I got into a fight. We never fight. I come from a family that doesn't fight. But I just flew into a rage because he said something stupid. And I, uh, there was a coffee cup in my hand, and I looked at that coffee cup quickly to make sure it wasn't a good one. And I threw it into the wall, carefully making sure it wasn't a wall with a picture on it. Because I don't believe that you lose your temper. I think people use your temper. And I was into using my temper. I wanted to get my point across to him. And I threw it into the wall, and I kicked a box and came at him, and he just went, whoa. And then I all of a sudden flashed on me what I was doing, and I knew I needed help. One more time, not being fully involved in meetings and having a local sponsor, I had lost control over myself again. So I quickly checked myself in. Um, found a woman that's from the East Coast, works the 12 steps hard like I was raised with. Wasn't this nice little Al-Anon stuff. Well, you'll be all right, honey. You know, just say what you mean, mean what you say. Don't tell me. She goes, you're going to write an inventory. <laughs> you know, and I sat in her kitchen table. And I said, yes, ma'am, wrote an inventory her way. She's got some really funky format. But I was willing to get well somebody else's way one more time, which is my definition of a third step. And I was able to make the decision that this child needed to go back to the state. And she's uh, had to go back to stay for, uh, she's not safe to be in anybody's home, so she had to go into an institution. And that just ripped my heart out. But I was able to get through that because I checked myself back into meetings and with a local sponsor that I had the support that I needed. And I knew all I had to do was show up, dress up, one step in front of the other. Uh, when it gets really bad, look around to see if anybody else needs help, try to help them. And I was able to get through that pain. But pain didn't stop there. There's things like this man that I picture myself being 80 years old with at um, 30, 31 years old had a heart attack. Comes into the bathroom and says, honey, call the, call the ambulance. And call the ambulance. And then the next phone call was right to my sponsor. She beat us to the hospital. They, she looked so bad they want to check her in. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned what powerlessness was really about at that time. Because there isn't anything that I can do when I can't even get in the back room to where he is. And so the only thing I could do was to shore myself up with support. My sponsor, I couldn't even make phone calls. She made phone calls. She grabbed the phone book and she called. His dad got upset because some stranger called him. Too bad. That was the best that I were going to get. And the whole time that Dave was in the hospital, I know that he was afraid and that he was uh, in pain. But I could barely see that I was so afraid and in so much pain that this thing that I finally had what I wanted was going to be taken away from me. The only thing I could do is just surrender and say, God, you're in charge. And uh, God surrounded me with loving people that would take me uh, to their house to take a nap and take me to eat because it was time to eat and take me up to his room, it was time to visit. And then we were able to get through that. Now, I figured when he got home from the hospital, and we had a party and everybody brought fat-free foods and fat-free dressings. And that lasted just about a week because it all tastes like garbage to him. <laughs> I found myself only once trying to be really manipulative behind that. I'm still really afraid, and this was a long time ago, but I'm still really afraid, but I can't manipulate his disease or his uh, decision, what he's going to do with his body. I tried once putting the fat-free dressing in the regular dressing. <laughs> he could taste it, so I've given up on that. Still decides to smoke. Sometimes I go absolutely crazy when I see potato chips being eaten or a cigarette being smoked or something. I just you know, don't die on me. And what I do is I revert to what I've learned in the very first meeting. If it bothers you, don't look at it. So sometimes I have to get up and look at something else. Go call somebody else. Get busy doing something else and take the focus off of what I'm powerless over. And he hasn't died yet, and I'm really, really grateful. He's had a few heart attacks since then. We've gotten better. We moved down to Louisville. I didn't want to move down because I finally got myself kind of situated in Terre Haute and started feeling good about it. And so I went down there with little crossed arms. I'm not going to enjoy myself down here. So Dave introduces me to a little Al-Anon gal. And she's 80 year, 82 years old, and she's barely four foot tall, and her name's Alice. And she had been in the program since the program got to, to Louisville. She was one of the original AA wives. And she grabbed my little hand and was so glad to meet me and drug me off to a meeting. And I couldn't do anything but say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> she introduced me to fun, nice people. And I learned 
a lot from this little old lady. One of the fears that I have since I don't have kids is who's going to take care of me when I'm old. And there were hundreds of people who loved Alice and Mike. And there were these young people and older people and really old people hanging out with Alice and Mike. And what did they do to get all that kind of support? Was that they kept picking up newcomers and taking them to meetings. They kept talking to people in the meetings. They didn't hang out with her little clique. They kept reaching out. And I, I, that's what I'll do. I'll know how to take care of myself when I get older now. I got really comfortable in Louisville, became a first uh, paid a trusted servant in uh, the Al-Anon Information Services. Got to work there four hours a day and nothing to do in an Al-Anon Information Office. Because <laughs> as the paid person, I couldn't take the 12-step calls. I have volunteer Al-Anon members taking the 12-step calls, so I couldn't even be busy on the phone. You know, I ordered some literature, wait for it to come in, unpack it. It's a room full of literature. I hadn't really read that stuff since I was new. So I got to read all that stuff over again, and it was wonderful. That stuff has really gotten good over the years. <laughs> and I found a whole new way to support myself is regular reading of the al literature. I was 15 years in the program, finally figure out <laughs> a little slow. So I get real comfortable in Louisville. Things are right. I got this little old lady that I love and adore that I'm hanging out with, and I got these big meetings that I'm going to, and people are involved in all different levels of service, and heck, they even got an active allotine. They got several active allotine groups going on. Things happening. And uh, Dave and I moved back to Terre Haute. Damn. But I decided to do it different, coming back to Terre Haute. One of the things I didn't like in Terre Haute was that there seemed to be a lack of enthusiasm. Someone suggested one time maybe we host the Al-Anon convention there, and somebody says, oh, no, that's too much work. You know, and I was, had that kind of an attitude around me a lot. I thought, well, if I want an enthusiastic group around me, it's going to have to begin with me. One of the first things I did was that there was no Alateen group. A friend of mine had a child and needed it, so I opened that group back up. And uh, Alateens run the group, and it's a continuing parade of different people in it and stuff, but it's a lot of energy, and there's some real enthusiasm with those young people. And, you know, they're just, like, happy to see you and just, you know, just in a good mood most of the time. And if they're in a bad mood, it's sincere, and they got their feelings on their sleeve, and you know where they're coming from. And I started to get, you know, that feels real good being around them. Well, in my Al-Anon meetings, I thought, you know, there's not a lot of enthusiasm. So I would try my hardest to bring some enthusiasm to it, doing simple things. On Wednesday night, everyone's really tired. They've worked half the week, and so the voices are kind of low and mellow and stuff, and I find my voice going like this. And that's not the kind of Al-Anon that gets my attention. But if I want them to perk up, I'm going to have to be the one to perk up. So I do things like start talking faster, picking up the pace, saying some funny things, getting things going a little bit. And you know, that's infectious, and they start laughing a little bit. And then finally, I found a Friday night meeting. It's out of town. We have to drive half an hour to get there. But it has the same feeling as my original home group did. And today I'm proud to tell you that my home group is the Thank God It's Friday group in Farmersburg, Indiana. <laughs> I love the people in that group so much, and they drove. Got several sitting over here. They came down for support. And that's the kind of recovery that I'm used to, is people willing to get in the car and go somewhere and do something fun. But I found I needed to start it myself. I couldn't just sit in a meeting waiting for someone to bring that to me. I had to do it. You know, it, and that's all I learned in this program. If, uh, if I want my husband to be nice to him, I, me, I've got to be nice to him first. You know, if I wish he'd bring me a cup of coffee, I've got to bring him a cup of coffee first. Things like that. Real simple things I learned in this program. When I call my mom, both my parents are sober. Uh, my dad gets to be in Sweden right now helping his mother who had a stroke. He gets to be a good son and do the right thing. And I get to be the good daughter and be there when my mom was sick a couple of months ago. And I told her what I was doing this weekend, and I says, I'm going to the Buckeye Convention. And she goes, Buckeye? She's in California. She goes, what's that? And I said, it's a nut. <laughs> and she, goes, she said, that fits. <laughs> So I get love and support all the way around. My husband says, oh, I'm not worthy to be around you today, and stuff like that. And then I just reinterpret that as he's supporting me. <laughs> <laughs> Take whatever I can get. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I do want to let you know one thing. Right now in my stomach, there's just a nice warm feeling that's kind of spreading up. Right now my hands are not clammy, and I'm not shaking, and I don't feel afraid. And it's because of the very simple things of just showing up, reporting how I feel, trying to do the next right thing, put one foot in front of the other. 
This program isn't hard. I have no idea how it works. I just know that it does work if you do it. And all you got to do is show up, ask some people how to do it, do what they do if you want what they have, and things will be all right. Thank you.